everyone thinks they're really good at judging character until they have to hire people. Because what you find out if you're like me and you've interviewed literally thousands of people and hired thousands of people in your life is that nobody's that good at judging character. Nobody's going to be a 10 out of 10. How do you create an unshakable business? I crossed $100 million in net worth by the age of 28. Now I'm growing acquisition.com into a billion dollar portfolio. In this podcast, I share the lessons I've learned in scaling big businesses and helping our portfolio companies do the same. Buckle up and let's build. So today, what I wanted to talk about was how I scaled to over 100 million in sales uh, using other people's skills. So I think that a lot of the time we come to these events and I've come to a ton of these events and the speeches are phenomenal. But there's one core piece that I want to focus on that I think a lot of people typically miss um, which is not having to do everything yourself. And I think that a lot of people, especially like myself, maybe seven years ago, when I would go to a conference, I would take away so much. I would have this notebook full of paper, just all my notes on it. And then I'd be like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do all of this? And so if you feel like that, my goal with this presentation is that you don't feel that way after listening to this today. So what I want to share is really the secret that's been responsible for scaling four of my own businesses and hundreds of others. And so if you don't know who I am, I'm just going to give a quick 60-second resume. Resume. Um, so since the age of 24, I've taken home about $1.2 million a month on average. Um, and I am now 30. And I say that not to boast, but to give you a reason to listen to me today. Because every time that I am at a speech, I'm at a conference, the main reason or the main thing I'm asking when someone's talking is, why should I listen to you? And so if you want to make more money, this is how. I personally built, scaled, and sold three businesses. So Jim Lott, which was a service business, Prestige Labs, which was an e-commerce business, and then Allen, which was a software business. And then by the age of 29, I crossed 100 million net worth. And by age 30, which is now, our portfolio does about $200 million in revenue per year. And it is comprised of brick and mortar chains, e-commerce, B2B SaaS, B2B services, B2B services, and e-learning. And so what I've actually learned through not just scaling my own, but especially since we started taking on portfolio companies, is that independent of industry, typically what entrepreneurs lack in order to scale their businesses is the who, the what, and the how to scale. And at acquisition.com, which is our company, what we do is we recruit the who, we give them the what, we show them the how, and once the entrepreneur has all three, their business will scale by default because the right pieces are in place. And that's how we scale businesses from 10 to 100 million. But of course, it was not always like that, right? So if we rewind back to 2016, uh, this is me and Alex, if you know my husband who speaks next. Um, and these are ads that we were running because what we did is in 2016, we started our company, Gym Launch. And the way that we started it was essentially, uh, we did the marketing for gyms and we would fly out ourselves and we would sit at their front desk and we would sell people into their locations. And so we were doing that and we did it for about 11 months as we were... <laughs> living out of the extended stay, staying at like clients' houses. Um, we really had no money. And it was, that was basically like the eating moment, right? And what we figured out after 11 months is that we couldn't continue to do that, nor could we continue to pay other people to do it either because they also hated eating all the time. Like you're basically flying out to people's gyms, you're sitting there, you're selling people into those gyms, and then they're basically telling you to off because they're like, I see how much money you just made on my location. And so what we realized was like, hey, maybe that's not the right model if all of our customers hate us. 
And so we switched to what we call as a licensing model, okay? So the licensing model was essentially uh, discovered by accident because we called up all the gyms to tell them, hey, f this, we're not doing this anymore. And they were like, hey, no, I need your help. And so we said, okay, cool. Well, we will teach you how to do it. We're not flying out to your gym to save your ass. And they were like, cool, I'll pay for it. And that was gym launch. And so we switched to this licensing model and everything felt 10 times easier. Because you guys know what it's like when you get the right offer, which is what Alex's book is about. It's like, once you get the right offer, it feels like things are finally starting to get easier, right? And we finally started to gain traction after we made that fundamental change. But then we hit this point where we couldn't scale. And we ended up continuing to bang our heads across the wall, across the wall. <laughs> and we couldn't break past $400,000 a month. And it was extremely frustrating. Um, anyone here ever felt that way? You just can't break past certain revenue? Sucks. And so after two months of setting sales targets and not hitting them, something occurred to me, which was that the reason that we were missing those targets was not due to the lack of client acquisition, right? It was actually due to capacity on our sales team. We actually couldn't hire fast enough to even contact all the people that were opting in. This was back in the day when Facebook ads were so cheap, there was such an arbitrage. We had hundreds and hundreds of people contacting us and applying every day, and we could not reach out to them fast enough. And so just when I thought, maybe I figured out what the issue is, maybe it's something with the funnel and the sales, one of our best reps quit. And I was like, my life. So I called my mentor, who I'm going to call Bob today. And I was like, Bob, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm 23. I've never managed people. I've never built a business. I have no effing clue even what I'm looking at. I don't even know, is this a problem? And he was like, Layla, what does your talent acquisition funnel look like? I was like, what the f is that? You know, like, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> and so he explained, he said, Layla, it's the mirror of every business. See, if you want to keep clients coming in the front door, then your talent needs to continue coming in the back door. And so the reason that we couldn't scale was not due to lack of client acquisition. It was actually lack of talent acquisition. You guys are all familiar with this, right? Funnel. Lead generation, lead nurture, sales. I would think anyone at this conference probably knows what that is, right? But what about talent acquisition? Why is nobody talking about that? Application generation, application nurture, interviewing. Mirrored funnel. And that was the light bulb moment for me when I literally put those two funnels side by side and I was like, oh, that's my job. And so as soon as we paired the talent acquisition with the client acquisition, we scaled from 400,000 a month to 4 million a month in 20 months. We didn't change our funnel. We didn't change our sales. We changed nothing. You can ask people who saw Gym Launch. They were like trying to dissect our funnel. It looked like shit. The URL was not even right. It was because we scaled our talent acquisition. And then we lived happily ever after with perfect blocks. Not actually, but talent acquisition is what broke us through that barrier of 400,000 a month and took us to 4 million. And what we realized through that process is that we've always been really one higher away from all the growth we wanted, all the leverage we needed, all the sanity that we thought we'd lost in building the business, and all the lessons that we didn't have time to learn ourselves. Does anyone feel that way? It's like you don't have time to learn all this yourself. And so here's a thought experiment for all of you. If someone could come in and do everything you did in your business today, and you would have to do nothing, and the business would grow the same, why are you necessary? 
The answer is that you're not necessary. I'm not necessary. Your job is to find the people to do that. And so your number one job as a leader is to find the people to help you build your business. This is a mindset shift that most people can't make, and that's why they never scale. They continue to hit their heads against the wall thinking, I need to work harder. I need to figure this out. Why can't I? One brain cannot build a $100 million business. It takes tons of brains to build that. And after all, if you wanted to win the Super Bowl, you're not like, I'm going to go win the Super Bowl alone, right? You're like, I need offense, I need defense, I need special teams, coaches, trainers. In other words, you need marketing, you need sales, you need product, you need customer success teams, HR teams, IT teams, finance. You need a team. And only us crazy entrepreneurs are the ones that are crazy enough to think that we can do it alone. After all, Steve Jobs was not the person who built the iPhone, right? We know that Steve built the team that built the iPhone. So I'm sure you're thinking, that's great for you and Steve, Layla, but what about me, right? That's what we're going to talk about today in the short amount of time that we do have. So if you want to get repeatable outcomes, then we need repeatable processes. We call ours the value acceleration method, or the VAM, at acquisition.com. And these are the real metrics of businesses in our portfolio who have implemented the VAM, since money is what most people want. This is the revenue growth. There's the profit growth, 2.5x, 1.1x, 2.6x, 1.3x, 2.8x, 9.8x. Average in the first year, revenue growth, 1.8x, profit growth of 3x. Average in the second year, 2.3x revenue, 4.7x profit. Clearly it works. So the VAM really comes down to three things. It's the who, it's the what, and it's the how, okay? Today, we only have time to talk about one, and so we're going to talk about the who. So let's dive in. All right. If you can acquire customers, which I assume many of you can if you're at this digital marketing event, you can acquire talent. There are three key activities in the talent acquisition funnel, okay? You are familiar with these. The applicant generation, the applicant nurture, and the interview process. So we're going to start with applicant generation. What is applicant generation? It is lead generation, which is getting people to want to work for you. Not getting people to work for you, getting people to want to work for you. If you can market and find customers, you can market and recruit talent. It is literally the same skill set. Anytime someone who's a fantastic marketer tells me, I just can't find good people, I'm like, it. you just don't see it yet. You have both, the skill set is used on both sides of the funnel. And so here's an example for you, is that the job title is the equivalent to the headline. It is as important in capturing the attention of your applicants as the headline is in capturing the attention of clients and ads. Okay, let me explain. So here's an ad from our company, Gym Launch, or the one that we sold. Okay, notice how we say gym owners. We're not saying personal trainers. We're not saying fitness enthusiasts. We're not saying yoga bar owners, right? We're saying gym owners, people who identify with being a gym owner. What does the person you are already looking for already call themselves? It's the same when you're at putting an ad out for a job. People put names out that make no sense. But the question is, the person that you're looking for, the intelligence level they have, the work ethic they have, what do they call themselves already? And so going deeper into that, there's two pieces to the lead generation. There's the ad, and then there's where do you put the ad? So the ad. Here's what most people do. One is they're unclear on who they're talking to. 
They just like throw out. They like Google something and they come up with a job title and they're like, that's what I'm going to call it. And the reality is, is that they're not really thoroughly thinking like, what does this person call themselves? Where do they live? What do they do for fun? How do they dress? What do they look like? Like they're not really envisioning it as much as you would for a client. And what you want to do is you want to be in a narrow focus to think, what does this employee look like just to the same extent that you would as what does this client look like? The second is that people include abbreviations, they use insider language, and they use way too many words. That doesn't mean much until I tell you what it should look like. So here's what we do. One is we're specific. We always know exactly who we're talking to. The moment that I get on an interview with someone, I could tell it right away. I'm like, this is the person or isn't the person. Even just by the way they dress, because I've already decided in my mind what it looks like. So I'll give you some examples. So we had a company that was searching for an analyst. Two and a half months in, can't find an analyst. I'm like, guys, this is not hard to find. This is one of the lower level roles in your company. And so I look at the ad and I was like, well, what kind of analyst are you looking for? They're like, well, we need someone more experienced. I was like, yes, and what kind of analyst? They're like, well, financial. And I'm like, why is that not in the title? The moment that we put in senior financial analyst, getting super specific on who that person is, literally within a week, they hired the person. The moment after we changed it. The second piece is that Typically, people get lazy. They don't think about this. When you're advertising to acquire clients, you're not going to abbreviate things. Yet people do that in job titles. The irony of this is that anywhere that you post a job title that's specific for jobs, Indeed, Glassdoor, LinkedIn, they downregulate you for abbreviating. So you can't actually abbreviate. It's just going to show you to less eyeballs. The third is using insider language. So this is an example from one of our portfolio companies. She came to me, the COO, and she was like, Layla, we need a student happiness lead. And I was like, what is a student happiness lead? <laughs> and she was like, you know, there's someone to like, you know, invest in our customers, make sure they're succeeding, like make sure that they like the product, make sure they're doing well, like, you know, get the customer journey in place. I said, that's a head of customer success. And she's like, well, we don't call them customers, we call them students. I said, that's good once they come in, but to advertise for this person, Nobody knows what student happiness lead is. So again, the moment that we changed it, literally within a week, she got her head of customer success. Uh, last two, which is customer support representative versus customer support rock star. So this is something that back in 2016, when I was advertising in gym launch to acquire people, if you put superstar, rock star, you know, badass, people would always apply and you got more applications. Now it's the opposite, which is they actually downregulate you for using those weird words. So that's one thing you don't want to do anymore. And lastly, similar to that, is sales representative versus, I see this all the time, sales rep, 100K minimum base. Again, it's going to downregulate you on the platforms. You don't want to put the actual uh, salary amount in the title. And not long ago, this actually happened to me, and I was reminded of this myself, which was I was looking for a customer success executive. How many people, how many people here in the room have heard of a customer success executive at a PE firm? Okay, maybe like one. They don't exist, really. Not really. Okay, I got nothing. So for the one person who did raise their hand, you're a unicorn. So I changed it to portfolio operating partner. I called up my friend. He said, Layla, what PE firm advertises for a customer success executive? And then I realized, I was like, I'm calling it a title that fits with my old company, not my new company. A PE firm doesn't use the language, right? As soon as I changed it for the operating partner, I got inundated with resumes and I hired the guy within a week. 
So the bottom line, if you see the pattern here, is that you have to keep the main thing the main thing. You have to remember who you're talking to. People get this when it comes to acquiring clients, but for some reason, it's something that's left out when you're thinking about acquiring employees. And so that is how you do the ad. Now, the second question to that is how do you distribute the ad? What most people do is they ask their network. We talk to about 25, 30 businesses a week that are doing anywhere, probably usually below 10 million, right? And the number one way that they acquire employees is that they ask their network. The number one problem they have is they can't scale. So here's why it doesn't work. One, you exhaust this fairly quickly and people get annoyed if you continue to ask them to use their network over and over again. Two, is that you will give someone the role even though they're not qualified. Because what are you comparing them to? Maybe one other person that you've gotten through your network? You don't have options. And then typically, you end up hiring a bunch of like-minded people because they come from one group of people rather than having diverse thinkers. A lot of people talk about diversity in terms of like how we look and ethnicity and all that. I talk about diversity of thinking is what you want in a company. And so if you wouldn't rely on your network to get clients, then why would you rely on it to build your team? So here's what we want to do instead. There's six ways that you can get employees. The first is your network. You can't. When would you use your network? When you are in an industry-specific niche where you have a network, right? So say that you're in wholesaling and you need to find someone that it's a very industry-specific role. Maybe for that role, then you would reach out to your network to try and find somebody. The second way that you can acquire employees is outbound. Typically, you're going to use outbound when you don't have a brand, okay? If you don't have a brand and you're a small company and you need a special role or a higher level role, outbound is typically the way to go. The third is paid ads. So paid ads are best used when you have a high volume, highly transactional role that you're trying to fill. So think about like Molly Maids. It makes sense that they run ads to acquire maids because it's such a hard position to find and fill, and that is their strategic advantage. Their strategic advantage is not even necessarily their marketing. It's the fact that they can actually keep and acquire maids. The fourth is organic content. So I would consider this brand or inbound. So if you actually are already putting out content, think about how you can use that to your advantage to acquire employees, not just clients. The fifth is recruiters. So again, if you're small and you have a lot of cash flow, I don't see a problem spending it on recruiters to get a couple high-level roles because they will edify you before you can edify yourself. And then the last is team referrals because people who are referred by a teammate are five times more likely to stay. The reason that I say that there are six ways to acquire employees is because I lived through only getting them through my network. So when we first built Dimwatch, amazing team. But it wasn't the right team to scale the business because what I didn't realize is I was just picking from whatever I had there, which was my network. So for example, that sales team, the first sales team that we ever had that flew out to all these different locations to launch these gyms, they were my friends from college. And then they brought more of my friends from college who brought more of their cousins and aunts and uncles. And then it just turned out to be this whole network of people who all thought the same, they all acted the same, and we continued to feel like we were the smartest people in the room. And so I had to learn it the hard way by having to do a lot of uh, self-reflection on what makes a good culture, on how to actually inquire the right kind of employees, and how to build a really strong talent acquisition arm. And as soon as I did start using all of those six methods, we sent endless options. And that is what I tell people. I'm like, you want endless options. Because think about if you had endless lead flow in terms of clients, and you also had endless lead flow in terms of employees and talent, how much better would your business be? 
And so the bottom line is we want to use every method available to get the right person, cast a wide net, and create endless options. Endless options. And that is a distribution. So if we do those two things, then we get lots of qualified applicants, right? That is applicant generation. Now, the second piece to this is applicant nurture, okay? What is applicant nurture? It is getting them bought in before they buy, right? Just like you wouldn't just have someone opt in and then immediately take a sales call, there's a nurture process in between. We do the same with employees. And so get this, 68% of candidates state that the hiring experience has the largest influence on whether or not they take the job. I see this for myself all the time. We recruit for our, we have 12 portfolio companies that we're constantly recruiting for. I see the ones that have a great experience, they get the best candidates. The ones that don't, one of our companies has the highest revenue, has the hardest time acquiring candidates because they still haven't locked this in. And it's obvious that if you generate clients, you must have a solid lead nurture process to get them and get the hardest, hardest, highest ROI. However, most people don't actually acquire or apply this to applicants. So the average hiring process takes about 23 days. The top candidates find a job in eight. So speed is king. And most people believe that the experience itself is the interview, but that's like thinking that a sales process is nothing but the sales call itself. And so to get the lead nurture process, what you have to understand is there's really two sides to this, okay? There's the sorting and then there's the communication. So sorting, here's what most people do wrong, okay? One, they don't really read the resumes because that sounds boring as f right? Right? They don't really look at the past experience and check to make sure that they actually work there because again, that would be time consuming and boring as f They don't really look at the length that somebody was at a job because they're just skimming the resume because again, it's boring. They don't look at the fact that they hop jobs, they ignore the lack of progression and they ignore literally all the red flags. You're so focused on relieving the pain you feel because you want to fill this role that you accommodate. Here's what we do. We read every resume, which is boring. We take out everybody who has unmatched experience, who job hops, who's never moved up, who hasn't done in a long time, at a business similar to ours. It's a ton of work. But how likely do you think it is that you could find a winner if you did that? Very. And so, just so you know, if I get 100 applicants for a role, I'm typically going to screen seven to nine and then maybe move two to three past the screening. So that means out of 100 people that have applied for a role, that I'm only going to move two to three to a full interview. These are average stats too. And so the bottom line is that this is a volume game. And if you don't have endless options, you can't play it. And so that leads us to how do we get in touch with them? So we've got the sorting. We understand that we have to do the boring work. Now, what about the communication? What do we say? Here's what most people think, because I have thought it myself too, <laughs> which is if they really want this job, they're going to do these 27 steps in order to get it, right? They should respond to me after one attempt of reaching out. I emailed them. Well, didn't email me back. I don't need to follow up. They should follow up with me. And they should already know about us because we're a big deal, right? And then I'm not going to give any communication on next steps because they should understand this because it's not complicated. I'm going to go really slow and not get back to them because I'm really important and busy. 
And I'm going to make it extra complicated so I only get the smart ones. Right? How many people do this? It's like, we think this. I think this sometimes. I'll be doing it, and I'm like, I'm doing it again. Right? Here's why this doesn't work. One, ego. Thinking people even know who you are. Right? Like, I think that people know who we are, and like, then I'll hire someone. They come in, and I'm like, oh, we're at the store. And like, someone came up and said, they're like, people know you guys? That's cool. I'm like, you work for me, and you don't even care. Right? <laughs> Second is laziness, which is making a good process is hard. Saying people are stupid is easy. Think about how many times someone builds like a software, for example. I saw this all the time in SaaS. And they'd be like, these stupid customers can't even figure out how to click the button. I was like, I can't click, figure out how to click your button. It's just so complicated. <laughs> right? Terrible UX. The third is assumptions, which is assuming that all these people think about is you. Right? And working for you. They're thinking about finding their dream job. They don't know if it's you. Especially nowadays, there's so many options out there. And listen, you're not just competing against the competitor or the similar business. You're competing against side hustles, side gigs, you know, opportunities they could pursue on their own, starting their own business. And lastly is distortion, which is assuming they don't have other options. Let me tell you, if somebody doesn't have another option, you should not hire them. And so what we want to do and what we want to understand is that it's not just customer experience that we need in a business, it's candidate experience. So there's four aspects of the communication that if you can embody these, you can get the best candidates. Okay, so this is the applicant nurture quadrant. The first is speed. Same day, next day. Would you leave a lead in your pipeline, say it's a $200,000 per year deal, would you just let it sit there for 24 hours? They opted in, they said they want what you've got, $200,000, would you just let it sit there for a day? What would you say to your salesperson? You're like, follow up the now, right? Yet, <laughs> we're trying to get employees that were maybe paying $100,000, $150,000, $200,000 a year, and we won't even call them for three days. We're like, I'll get to that on Friday. The second is volume, which is understanding that you need to have a hard choice at the end of the day. The reason that you want volume is because you are more likely to make the correct decision if you have two to three candidates to choose from. If you don't, then you're just going to pick whatever seems meh, right? It's like the same as dating, right? It's like if you live in a small town, a girl who's like, you know, maybe a six in, in Newport is like a 10 when you're in like Oklahoma or something. But you go to Newport and you're like, I got all these 10s over here. The third is personalization right? And so again, if you had an enterprise client worth $200,000 per year, opt-in, are you going to send them an automated text message? No. So if you have somebody apply to be, say, your CFO who's going to get paid $300,000 a year, why wouldn't you send them a personal text, a personal email? But people don't. They're just like, oh, indeed, in LinkedIn, they send these great little templated things. I'm like, that looks like you know, they're like, you really want me to work for you? You send me this template? People can tell. And then the last piece to it is that you have to take an omni-channel approach. Okay, who here has had a sales guy who's been like, I mean, I emailed him and, you know, they didn't email me back, right? And you're like, dude, call them. <laughs> it's like, we do the same with candidates, but we don't see it. We're like, I emailed him and he didn't email me back. I'm like, call him, get him on LinkedIn, get him on Instagram, like you see his Twitter. Right? Like they have options. If they're good employees, they have endless options too. And so when you do both, 
You can actually get a hold of the best candidates fast and actually hire the people that you need to grow your business. And here's what happened when we did this with one of our companies. We implemented an applicant nurture process. It was a course business. They were on decline. Their revenue was down about 60%. They were doing 1.8 million a month when we started with them. Everything was on fire. They had no brand, no brand awareness, nothing to work with in terms of acquiring talent. And we had five missing roles. We had a CFO. We had a VP of sales. We had a uh, head of customer success. We had a head of tech. And then we had a COO. So over the next six months, we kicked off the recruiting process, implemented the candidate nurture for all of the five roles with heavy nurture. We filled those slots within six months. The CEO felt immense relief. And by the way, the CEO is a world-class marketer because he wasn't putting out fires all the time because he actually had a team. That business is now doing $12 million a month, 18 months later. Team. By the way, didn't change anything about the sales and marketing. Weird. So not everyone's going to explode like he exploded. <laughs> but if you could even have a tenth of that, maybe go from 1.8 to 2.8, I feel like that would be worth doing this. So that is applicant nurture. Now, the third piece to the funnel is the interview process. Okay, So this is selling them on the company and the vision and the impact of their role. So just like you sell customers on life after they buy your product, you also sell employees on life after they take a job with you. And so as you level up in your company, people always say like, oh, you know, I stopped selling, etc. I'm like, you never stop selling. You just change who you're selling to. You sold to your clients, now you sell it to your employees. So who here has actually sold a client, but you did like a really sale, like they weren't sold well, and so they just were like a client for forever? Anyone? Yeah, suck, right? That's what you get when you don't sell an employee. The same not bought in, not engaged, not loyal. And so the question is, what does the ideal sale actually look like? There's, again, two elements to this. There's the process and there's the scripting. So we're first going to talk about the process. Here's what most people do. Might sound familiar. One, overestimate your ability to judge character. What I like to say is that everyone thinks they're really good at judging character until they have to hire people. Because what you find out if you're like me and you've interviewed literally thousands of people and hired thousands of people in your life is that nobody's that good at judging character. Nobody's going to be a 10 out of 10. The second is that most people conduct one to two interviews. Because again, it takes a lot of time. You just need to get someone in. You're in a lot of pain. I get it. Third is that you utilize usually only one person, which is usually yourself, to make the decision. Fourth is that you delegate it to someone who doesn't know the role. Because oftentimes we're like, well, f this, I'm so busy running this business, somebody else can go hire these people. Which leads to number five, which is thinking that it is a waste of time to do hiring as a CEO and a leader. And so here's why that doesn't work. One is there's a reason that the top companies have robust interview selection processes. In fact, the top 26% identify with having robust interview selection processes. Two is that companies that are reactive and fragmenting with their hiring process are in the bottom 14% of company performance overall. I don't think that's a coincidence. Three is that 63% of candidates reject a job due to lack of information during the hiring process. I see that all the time. And lastly is 85% of people lie on their resumes. 
I checked that like six times. So I was like, seriously? So here's what we do. We do a five-step sale, essentially. The first is the screening. What you can think of in terms of the screening is you can think of this, which is if you had an enterprise client, are you going to schedule a 90-minute call with them without doing a pre-screen? No, you're going to make sure they actually have the money, that they can actually pay, and then you're going to push them to the next call. It's the same with the interview process. That is the purpose of the screening. Make sure they're not a crazy person. and blow up your business. The second is the expectations and culture interview. Okay, expectations, culture, literally aligning expectations, making sure the pay is right, all that, and making sure the culture is there. Third is the skill test interview. Skill test interview is making sure they can actually do the job. This is, again, one that most people skip, and we're going to get to what you can actually do tactically so that you can actually make sure you don't skip this part. Fourth is the alignment interview, which is like, is what you want, is what I want, same thing. And lastly, if you are a big enough company, if you have over 30 people, typically, then it's a CEO interview. And so after implementing this process in my last company, Gym Launch, we doubled our acceptance rate, we had a 50% reduction in turnover, and we had a 100% time to productivity increase. Time to productivity is like time until that person's actually producing in the role and is taking it over. That's pretty good, because what all that means is that you save money. And so the bottom line is it actually is going to cost you more not to do this than it does to do this. But in the short term, a lot of people think the opposite. They're like, this is going to take my time. This is so many interviews. Jesus, this is on stage. But like in reality, in the long term, it's going to save you money. Which brings us to the last element, right? Which is like, okay, I get the process now, Layla, but what do you actually ask them? Scripting. Screening call. First thing, and you guys just screenshot this if you want it, because I don't want to read all these out to you. That'll be boring. First is you want to clarify the role in the company, right? What you're going to see is that this is going to be in every step of the way. Clarify the role, clarify the company, right? Why do you want this job? What attracts you to this company? Are you flexible? When could you start? Non-negotiables. That's what you want to hit on there. So you can just weed people out immediately. Make sure they're not a psycho. The second is the expectations and culture interview, okay? So for this one, this is understanding, are they a right culture fit for the role? A good example of this might be, you know, what do you consider your ideal day to look like? If they're like, you know, wake up around nine, maybe work for an hour or two, then like go do sports, this, I'm like, dude, you're not gonna work at this company. <laughs> like, we're working at six, right? So these are where you wanna ask questions to understand, does your ideal scene, does their ideal scene align? And that's going to be different in every company. I might just say that. For some of you, that might make sense. That's fine. The third is the skill test interview. This is the one where most people go wrong because they're like, well, Layla, how am I going to test skill on a COO? It's an operator role. I'm like, what were the problems that you had last quarter that if this person was there, they would have solved? Ask them those questions. So what you want to do is present the problem you had last quarter, ask them how they would solve it. Literally, you could do that with any role. And I have hacked this because I came up with so many different tests over and over and over again that were like tactical and I would like send them out in little papers and all this. I was like, this takes way too long. What's a problem that I had last quarter that this person would have solved? Give it to them right there. The fourth is clarity, is the alignment interview, which I look at this one as basically saying, are we aligned on what the future looks like? You wouldn't get married to somebody if your vision of what marriage looks like and their vision of what marriage looks like were different, would you? 
So if you want to retain someone for a long time and not incur the cost of turnover, then you've got to do the same with your employees, which is understanding what they want for your future, what they want for their future, and what you want for yours, and are they aligned? And then the last one, if you are a big enough company, so say you have over 30 people, I find this helpful, which is the CEO interview, right? Which is edifying the importance of this role, helping with a personal career path, aligning the trajectory, and then setting expectations. If you don't have a company of over 30 people, I don't think you need that one. The bottom line is that we wanna have a script and objective for every interview, okay? When you say the right things and you have a clear objective, you're gonna push the wrong people out and pull the right people in. If you can script and choreograph a sales process to acquire clients, then you can script and choreograph the interview process to acquire talent. It's funny because a lot of people are like, they would never let their salesperson get on the phone without having a clear script. And yet they let their employees and themselves get on the phone all the time with future employees with no script. If you don't have a script and you don't have a process, you would not get reliable outcomes. And so I love this quote by Mark Cuban, which is learning to sell because you're always selling in business. And so just like I said in the beginning, just because you're not selling to clients doesn't mean you're not selling to your employees. And I think as we continue to build our businesses, if we want to build a business that we can truly sell, we can scale, and it doesn't rely on us, then this is the skill that we have to learn. And so here's what happened when we did this with one of our portfolio companies. We had a niche certification business. It was stuck at like 400K a month. Notice that number. A lot of businesses are stuck at that point. It was a charismatic founder. He was like a genius with a thousand helpers. Really good guy, but like couldn't take his hands out, like very controlling. Um, kind of like one of those, like if you want to get it done, do it yourself type per person. He had like an operator in there who was one of his like best friends and nobody had scaled the company past that point. And so what we did was we kicked out the old operator. We kicked off the recruiting process. We found a new operator who had scaled a business past that point. We gave the what and the how and we scaled that business to $1.2 million a month within six months. Didn't change the marketing, didn't change the sales. In fact, I, they literally had the same ad in the beginning and a year later. And I found that out later. I was like, you've been running the same ad on Facebook, right? They changed nothing. They got a different person in there. And so that is the interview process, which is the third piece. So what we covered is really why talent acquisition is the missing funnel in your business and how every problem you have can be solved by the right person, how to attract the right applicants using the right ads and the six ways to get talent, how to nurture the right applicants using the sorting and decision-making processes, and how to sell the right people using the interview process and the five steps and scripts. So here's a quick reminder of why this actually works. Money, money. I know that's all that anybody cares about. Like, I swear this will make you more money. This is the boring shit that will make you more money in the long term before any tactic. And it pains me the amount of people that come to these conferences and they're such genius marketing and salespeople, but they won't do this. And so forever, they'll build a business to maybe five or maybe 10 million. And then they, that business eventually caps because they can't hire people. And then they go do it again. I see it all the time. So the reminder is that you don't build the business. If you build the people, the people build the business. Zig Ziglar. So if we're honest, who actually is going to do this? A few psychos. The reason I know that a lot of people won't do this is because my own CEOs, who I'm invested in their companies, I can't get them to do it. 
it is easier for most of us to continue to do the work rather than to find other people to help us. See, what happens is in the beginning when we build a business, what we typically do is we train ourselves to work very, very hard, but we do not train ourselves to create insane leverage. And the question is really like, why do most CEOs never actually create leverage? Why are they constantly bottlenecked by themselves? They refuse to give up control. They believe the lies that their brain tells them to keep them safe from imaginary threats that don't even exist anywhere but their brain, right? What if I hire them and they're actually worse than me? That'll happen. What if I hire them and then we make less money and I can't afford them? Sometimes happens too. What if I hire them and my current team hates them because they're better than my current team? Definitely will happen. What if I hire them and they see I'm not even as smart as I seem? Happens to me all the time. What if I hire them and they steal from me? Some people will do that. So here's a thought experiment that I would ask all of you to really think through, which is what if you let your fear prevent you from implementing this process and hiring smart people? Seriously, like what if you never do any of this? What does your business look like in five years if you never do this? Best case, in my opinion, is you become the genius with a thousand helpers. Which, what does that look like? Typically mediocre success is like people are like, wow, this person's really coming up, blah, blah, blah. And then like eventually they like stagnate, plateau, decline, die, right? Because you can only get so far with one brain. Worst case, you aren't here in five years. Seriously, like I say this because I'm like, I'm not fine. I see so many people go out because imagine if you have to carry the weight of your business for five years by yourself because you can't hire people. One brain cannot grow a $100 million business. I stand up here talking about how to build one. I didn't do it myself. Half the time I'm like, I feel like a fraud because it's all these people on my team. So the choice is really yours that I would give you today, which is you can remain comfortable, yet mediocre, or you can face fear and succeed. <laughs>